the digital transition. Transition, a podcast series created to assist those tasked with implementing digital strategies, where we will share our knowledge and experiences to support you in your transition. Welcome to the Digital Transition, podcast number 25. I'm your host, Nathan Hildebrand, and today I'm chatting with Anna Murray from IFS about digital twins. Now, before I talk to Anna, I need to talk to you about our exclusive sponsor, NBS. NBS are the creators of the specification tool, NBS Chorus. So for those that are part of the industry, you recognize the specification actually forms an integral part of the documentation that's produced by the design team. So NBS Chorus is a flexible, uh, responsive specification software that allows you to specify in parallel with your model, uh, either in ArchiCAD or Revit, through its direct link API. Now this linking enables live tracking of what is in your model and in your specification, and it's aiming to remove conflicts from your documentation. So to learn more about NBS, head over to their website, www.thenbs.com.au. Now on with the show. So thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us, Anna. Uh, Thank you for the invitation, Nathan. Firstly, Anna, for those that are not aware of who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I've um, worked worked my way through being a fairly technical person, a programmer, to moving into software and looking after um, mainly government and defence accounts and others, engineering, construction and infrastructure, who need to realise value out of their technical investments. And in recent times, as you would know, this has changed quite dramatically because we've got a whole swag of emerging technologies that are sitting there adding value um, in the infrastructure and physical asset space that a lot of government and infrastructure clients are very interested in. Moving on from yourself, can you give us a little bit of an insight to the company that you work for, uh, IFS? Mm. Now, IFS, uh, for people that are in the construction industry that haven't been aware of what you've done before, might seem ambiguous because it's just an acronym for a name or, you know, can you share with us a little bit about IFS and and the different services that you offer industry? Uh, So IFS started uh, over in Sweden offering asset management to nuclear power industries and uh, so they're very strong in Europe and the Nordics and they've been over here for some time but obviously just don't quite have the same brand recognition as yet. But what they do is they offer business systems into asset-intensive or project-based industries. So that's um, obviously engineering, construction and infrastructure. So people who design, construct and maintain complex physical assets. So things like nuclear power stations, railroads, buildings, cities, you name it. It sounds like as if uh, IFS aligned themselves almost with Graphisoft uh back in the early 90s because I know that uh, Archicad was created in uh, the early 90s to actually model nuclear power stations. So it would be interesting whether or not there was actually an alignment between uh, Graphisoft and and your company uh, back in its foundings. There may well have been, actually. That's something I can can follow up. But it seems that a lot of organisations started and their sort of premier flagship customers were nuclear power. And I think it's probably because 
there are so many um, details and regulatory compliance and master data management configuration issues around nuclear power that I think people think, well, if we can nail this one, everything else will be a piece of cake. Yeah, well, failure is a little bit catastrophic, you know, when when something goes wrong with nuclear power, which I don't think, you know, it's not a joke, but I guess it's actually kind of more a serious note that if you can get that right, then it's a case you can apply across a lot of things. I think that's I think that's why in a number of uh, industries where they've either taken configuration, master data management, asset complex asset management, they've actually started with the hardest case sector that they could find because obviously if you can map out the regulatory and compliance and maintenance issues for a nuclear power plant and you can get that right because as you say there are absolutely huge implications should those things go wrong then you can obviously trickle down and you can you can look after most complex asset industries from there yeah now today we're here to talk obviously about because of the work that IFS does, it's it's a it's about the the concept of of software and com- computational tools, essentially attaching them or assisting asset owners in one sector. So you know, this isn't everything that you do, but it's one component of what you do. You know, we have I have spoken to uh, Christina about digital twins before uh, last series uh, earlier last year, but. I think it's good to kind of get two different perspectives on it, hence why I have you on the on the podcast today to talk about it. You know, do you want to give us a little bit of a history on, on the digital twin concept and where they actually began? Yes, I would very much like to. When I gave a, a recent presentation a couple of months ago, I actually looked into this myself because I just thought this is this is just such an interesting concept. And I know the term has sort of sprung to life in the last few years. But interestingly enough, the very, very first, I suppose it wouldn't be a digital twin, it would be a twin, uh, was for the Apollo 13 mission. And we all know that mission. It was famous because uh, the oxygen tanks exploded very early into the mission and it became a rescue mission that was televised. And I suspect we've all seen the Tom Hanks movie. Um, And what they needed to do was the engineers and the scientists on Earth needed to solve the technical issues for the astronauts, and they were actually 200,000 miles away. And the key to this rescue mission was the fact that NASA actually had a model of Apollo 13 on Earth. So it was probably not particularly digital at that time, but they had replicated that exact system on Earth. So it enabled them to test possible solutions at ground level. So they could run through scenarios and work out whether what the implications were going to be for the astronauts. So that's how they actually managed to bring them down safely. That model played an enormous part in bringing that uh, mission back down to Earth safely. So it wasn't really a digital twin, but a physical twin, which, you know, is not something that's actually going to be capable of actually happening uh, in real life for built assets across the world because it's not really a sustainable solution because, you know, you're going to have something that's uh, going to perform the same. But do you, through your research, do you actually have any understanding why NASA actually created this twin of the Apollo rockets? No, I haven't. I haven't managed to find why they... Uh, were so prescient, really, as to create a twin for this model. Um, Or maybe it was something that they did up to a point anyway, 
or it could have been that they had this basic model and they scrambled to, you know, make it a full replica so that they could test these scenarios. I would think at the time, because it was in the very early days, um, that they probably had some sort of model anyway just to test scenarios because there were various uh little things that used to go awry on these missions anyway, and they used to make test the scenarios through on the model. But I think that was the first time they really had a life and death situation that they had to run through on Earth. Yeah, well, it it makes sense in some ways, but I guess they'd also have training for the astronauts before they departed in terms of, you know, awareness of what all the pieces are that they're going to experience when they're taking their journey. And it's, you know, it's, it's a kind of an awareness factor before they've even done their real journey as to how this space shuttle or craft was actually going to, or rockets actually going to work. Well, that's right. And um, I, I think a lot of the astronauts were test pilots anyway. And um, as you know, test pilots have to understand a lot of the physical physics and mathematics around the planes because um, maybe not so much now because the planes generally fly themselves, but you have to understand what the implications are for what you're doing in a, in a plane. So my guess is these were the top of the top and they, they obviously um, were able to help with the computational and, and tell the um, engineers on earth what was happening with the craft and what, what the implications were and what was actually going on. Yeah. Now, Anna, the main reason why I have you on the podcast and the other reason why I had Christina on last year as well is there, in my opinion, there's a lot of false, you know, or fake, or no, it would be called false. It'd probably be misinterpretation about what a model digital twin is. And I guess my next question to you, and this is because I believe that your interpretation uh, when you presented at Brisbane 100% aligns with my thinking. So that's why I wanted to bring you onto the podcast to kind of share your thoughts on this as well, because I think it's really important. And I guess I want to understand from your perspective and, and your role that you've played in industry to date as well, what your thoughts are on what is a modern digital twin when it comes to the built environment. And so that's, I guess, the first part of the question. The second part of the question, what are the roles that a digital twin actually can play in the operation and maintenance of an asset? So you know, obviously it's not going to be, you know, pull this lever and you'll be able to return to earth. But, um, you know, what, 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 what is a digital twin for you and what are the roles it can play uh, in, in the maintenance and, and operation of an asset? Uh, thanks for that question. So I think where uh, you and I and our thinking aligns is there's a lot of great technology out there about digital twins and there's a lot of, great data capture and there's some some good looking um, models going around. So a, a digital twin is not a 3D model. It's a federation of data about that asset. It is a software model that replicates the asset as closely as possible so that you can you can uh, make decisions about it. But it's it's far more than a 3D model. So obviously if you have a nice 3D model of your asset, so long as you can federate the necessary data behind that and you can maintain it, then yes, that could be the interface into a 3D model. But I think a lot of people have got seduced by and conflated sort of BIM and maybe some other um, some other terminologies thinking, oh, I've got a I've got a 3D model 
of my asset. But um, you, you may have a 3D design model of your asset and it may not be a faithful replication of what's actually going on and it may not, it needs to include a whole bunch of other data, situational data and context data and that's where all the sensors come in and all the uh, really interesting IoT and the way we're capturing data about those models. But it is absolutely, it's really a collection of data about your asset, which is modeled in such a way that you can do things with it in the future. And what would you want to do with it? Well, if we think about modeling our cities and having a smart city model, it's far more than just having a 3D replica of your city. It's about understanding the impact of traffic flows, of pedestrian uh, movement. It's about understanding the impact of weather on your city and whether you're creating wind tunnels or heat uh, islands. And it's really the, if you think about a digital model, it needs to help with the outcome. So the outcome for a smart city is to make it a livable place for all its stakeholders, which is people like you and I. So to make our commute faster, to make uh, mean that we don't get flooding in inappropriate areas, that we don't create too much density and we're just creating a heat island somewhere to, to make sure that we've got enough tree canopy. So to measure and monitor all those things, and there's so many stakeholders in a smart city, it's a really good example of how you, how you would want to use data and all the sensor data to make sure that you're um, creating a good outcome for all the stakeholders. And you can go even further. People are talking about smart buildings now, and smart buildings need to create a good outcome for its, their inhabitants. So what are you using that building for? But also they need to make minimal impact on their environment. So to make sure that your, your building is not generating too much heat or creating a wind tunnel and that it's actually environmentally friendly and a sustainable building and all those sort of good things. And it's a usable building for the people inside it. You may have already kind of answered this for me, but the key thing to take away from that is a digital twin, you know, typically and, and the basis of it, what actually creates a digital twin is the connectivity between the physical asset and the digital asset. And that's typically centered around the use of the internet of things and that magical, you know, another buzzword, but it's really what it actually means is about sensors being positioned within the building to record certain pieces of information regarding that asset and transferring that information to a computer database for which the model's potentially part of and then reporting back to certain people that need to make decisions about how that asset's performing as, as to whether or not it's performing appropriately or not. What other, and the thing is, is the reason why I want to use this word because it's important to kind of understand that there's, there's always the opportunity for too much data and therefore if you have too much data then it's actually not really useful at all. But if we want to look at optimizing our digital twin and informing our decision-making regarding asset, what other data do you think is important? I guess you talked about the concept of the smart city and the buildings being put together to then inform heap sinks and wind tunnels. What other data do you think is actually important that could be utilized by asset owners rather than just the sensor side of things that they could actually incorporate into their digital twin? Well, I think depending on, on what the building is or, or what its use case is, it's it's important to know how people are using it because if you create a building and, and you want a certain level of use or a, a really 
interesting, uh, I was talking to somebody this morning about a new airport they're building at Badgeries Creek, and we all decided this is a great ground-level opportunity for them to build and design a building that will give the primary stakeholder, which is people like you and me as travellers, a really good experience through it. So in that design phase, um, you actually got to take into account the, the people that are going to be using this. So you'd want to monitor foot traffic to see whether there's pinch points or that the elevators are, are, are correctly programmed or sequenced. You want to see if people are too cold or too hot in your building or if you've built something that's north-facing that gets or west-facing that gets a, such a huge amount of afternoon sun that you have to crank up the aircon and therefore your power costs. So I think there's there's enormous amount... You have to think about these all these assets with the outcome in mind. And the outcome is, especially for smart buildings and smart cities, is there's no point unless they're actually making things better for the people within them. So really, Unless you're going to have no people and you're just going to have autonomous cars driving around the place without any people, then you would, you would look at a different outcome then because you just want everything to be straight and easy for an autonomous car. But basically, humans actually like complexity and we like little laneways and we like variety. So that makes cities harder to manage for people like us. But it also makes the whole the concept of the digital city a lot more interesting. What that really demonstrates, though, for the listeners that are contemplating, you know, this part of their journey in terms of, well, I want to implement a digital twin on one of my projects, is what it demonstrates is, is that every digital twin is unique. Uh, similar to a scenario where we hear customers or clients or asset owners asking for BIM, please, asking for a simple digital twin really isn't the answer either. It's it's purely uh, the conversation today is around what the options are for people that, that are looking to uh, obtain greater benefits. And what really never really happens with a lot of projects is they get built. And yes, the one component of the digital twin that is of, of major relevance can be in and around systems maintenance and preventative maintenance. And I talked to James Cheese right about that last year. But the other side to that is in around the human factor. And we do not seem to get the opportunity as architects as often as we should get to do post-occupancy evaluations of all the built work that we do to actually then essentially we do go and witness and observe our spaces that we design but for clients to then be able that are major asset owners that have multiple assets you know can learn off the back of uh, this and then integrate it into their other projects now one of the things I think that's really challenging around this is that the effort that's required by the whole supply chain. So the design team, the construction team with the subcontractors, the, the amount of energy and effort that's required to provide structured data, first of all, because that's the first thing that you need uh, to enable this to be useful information. Then the cost of actually installing these sensors across a building can be really, really expensive. Clients need to obviously be strategic about digital twins. And I think that their introduction into the built asset sector could be very challenging for the construction industry because, you know, some of these desires are really are there and people are trying to do it. I think you've just called out the, the traditional way that we construct buildings 
I think is what I'm taking from that doesn't lend itself necessarily, not in all cases, obviously, but necessarily to a good outcome because we do have this extended supply chain and everybody in that supply chain obviously needs to make money on their component because otherwise, you know, why would you do it? And adding value to somebody further down the the track, which is the maybe the asset owner or the occupants of the building, yes, is neither is neither here nor there really to the design and construct people because they've got their specs, they're going to deliver to those specs, and they have to make as much profit and margin on that project as they possibly can. Otherwise, you know, they're going to go out of business. So that dis, that is disconnected from the outcome of the building. So. Uh, there's a quite some quite interesting reading out about that that says construction needs to almost rejig its whole contracts to think about the outcome in mind because at the moment there's no incentive for anybody in that supply chain to actually really supply that good outcome. Yeah, well, it's controlled. It's controlled in some sense uh, on a traditional procurement route where the architect is designing and specifying products that have a durability class to them so that the client gets satisfaction so that they get re-employed. Now, on the next project, the client's happy that that's what's happening. But you are right. The the challenges are there from all sorts of lines of procurement where, uh, you know, government agencies are interested purely in capital pricing. You know, you talk to the guys from government and Treasury determines... Their, their budgets based upon capital expenditure, not operational expenditure. It could change. It, it changes, obviously. It works along the contracts of the PPP projects where the contractor has to hand the project over after a decade of owning, uh, building and maintaining it and then handing it over fresh to the government owner. It'd be interesting. That, that's a really interesting point you raise about how the reason why this actually may be all held up is purely because of the fact that the procurement route is broken and there is no benefit to the team doing the work at the front end to actually protect the client in the long term. I don't know how the structure would that of that would work in the long term because it would be very hard for, you know, small uh, building small builders being able to even deliver that and and maintain that level of asset management and you know, it changed the whole structure because of the fact that capital costs may slightly increase to, to adjust operational costs might decrease. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But then once again, so, banks don't look at that either. Banks don't look at no. the operational cost of a building. You know, we could design. One of the things that really bothers me is when we're trying to design for access compliance, and I I, I think it's important that we design buildings that are are perfectly accessible from everyone, no matter what their what their capabilities are. But the second that you install a lift uh, in a building, you know the capital costs of a small lift for you know an education facility is around a hundred to hundred fifty thousand dollars. But then every year under the Work Workplace Health and Safety Act, they actually have to maintain that asset and get it checked and serviced by qualified people and signed off every year to say it's still operational, it's still compliant. So the bank, when they're loaning for that for that uh, upfront cost, don't look at that and go, oh, that's why are you doing that? <laughs> you know, or if you installed this slightly more expensive item, 
it means that the cost of maintaining it is lower. You know, there's no never any questions about things at the start. It's only if it costs too much at the start. But if you be interesting whether or not loaning agencies and banks then would turn around and change their structure based upon the potential life on you know the full life cost of an asset rather than just the capital cost of an asset Mm. and now i'm getting really sidetracked but i think that almost in itself is a whole conversation as to well maybe the construction industry isn't actually broken it's actually the 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 financial sector that's actually broken i think the construction industry is just reacting to to the way they're asked to do business and I think that going back, I think that leads into digital twins because at the end of the day, they deliver their asset. So their asset could be a new office block, it could be a new set of, you know, um, it could be a school, a hospital, whatever. They deliver a functioning asset. But you're right, you see, there's no, there's no thought. I don't think there's enough thought about, there probably isn't a hospital, obviously, because it's a very technical, specific asset. But there's not enough thought given to the long-term impact of that asset and its usability because there's no point delivering a whole bunch of what looked like nice uh, unit uh, apartment blocks or um, school if everybody is utterly miserable living there or utilising it. So uh, I do I do agree it's not an easy option and, and it's why I think the digital twins are far more prevalent in industries where... You can associate the asset and its functioning directly with a monetary cost, which is harder to do with a built asset. Taking a slight um, adjustment and now kind of talking about the built industry because all of the buildings that we deal with are all one-offs typically. You know, there are some housing modules that get repeated. You know, we get through the mass housing market but that's probably done more so for an economy of scale rather than anything Mm -hmm. else. And so we've talked a bit about the built environment. We've talked about uh, preventative maintenance. And I think there's lots of lessons to be learned in terms of preventative maintenance in other industries and how digital twins are, are, you know, probably more successful in the sense of wouldn't be specifically digital twins, but it's more about sensors and, and, and understanding how things work. Now, can you share with us a bit of uh, insight into some of your experiences actually from the aviation industry? I think they're, they're interesting things where the, the listeners could probably understand how that's actually helped, you know, the investment in preventative maintenance actions and sensors in, that, in the aviation industry are actually driving great benefits for them. This is a great case study that um, IFS did with one of their customers, um, Rolls-Royce. So Rolls-Royce have moved to a servitization model and they no longer deliver a product, they deliver a service. And one of the key call-outs that I've been reading about is there's a prediction that the construction industry will be moving towards that model as well. When, I don't know. So... Instead of installing Trent engines into aircraft like Airbus or Boeing or whatever, uh, it's mainly Airbus, they actually say, no, 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 we want to partner with our customers. So Rolls-Royce's customers are all the airlines, clearly. Now, an airline wants to keep a plane up running in the air for as long as it possibly can because the minute it's on the ground sitting there and we can see that now is happening with everybody, they start 
losing money because they still got leasing costs on those aircraft. So we can see that playing out in front of us at the moment. So obviously, though, they have safety and compliance issues, so they cannot keep those aircraft running past a certain time. So Rolls-Royce said, I know what we do because we've got intelligent engines and we've got sensors all over them and we can we can absolutely, down to an absolute micro level, pick what's happening with that engine at any one time and we can feed in other data such as, you know, operating air, um, are you running this in a desert, are you running it in cold temperatures, that will have a different impact. And what they did and said to their airlines was, we're not going to flog you a Rolls-Royce engine anymore and then just come in and maintain it every quarter or every half a year or whatever. We're actually going to sell you an hour of power. And so what happens is they actually partner with their airlines and IFS was the system that takes the data and federates it in with a whole bunch of other um, information. But they take the, the data from that engine and feed it back in um, through a blue data thread and they actually get a thousand, they get 35% more engine uh, running out of that. So they've extended the engine life by 35%. And what they did with that was they recognized these data parts as some parts that uh, need a life replacement in these engines. So if you can keep those parts running for that much longer, that saves you having to replace them and strip them. So they take this granular data, feed it through federate it with all the other stuff going on, like how many times is this flying hot or cold or how many people are on it, all the information that they can get and they partner with their airlines to do that and then they feed it into the IFS back system to say, okay, all right, this is when you need to maintain your aircraft. So instead of just saying reading by the book like we do with our cars, every 10,000, 5,000 kilometres we take it in, but what if we actually had more information about how our engine was running you could actually really predict down to a very granular level when you needed to take that in for a service. So that's an example of how a traditional product manufacturer has moved to partner with their own customers in a serviceization model. So an hour of power. So they guarantee an hour of power back to their airlines. I think it's a very interesting model. And you can see already the software industry has already moved to the SaaS model rather than most software providers providing you perpetual licensing, which is used to be, you know, here's the, here's the product and away you go. It's no, well, you can subscribe to us and constantly get updates so that you can be uh, up to speed with things. And it's something that I agree with and disagree with in two, in two different yeah. ways. Um, there isn't a, you know, there's, there's things to be said about being able to have access to the software whenever you want uh, into the future to be able to mm. access your files. But, you know, that's a whole different story rather than having a debate about that. We're not here to talk about that today. But mm. it demonstrates, I guess, the importance in some areas of actually investing in those things. And the key thing, I guess, when anyone kind of looks to get into uh, any of this BIM or digital twin kind of technology, and we'll call it technology even though it's not, it's a process and then, the digital mm. twin stuff kind of does turn into technology backing it. The key thing being that business cases should be drawn behind this, you know, Boeing, or oh, sorry, not Boeing, but Rolls-Royce wouldn't turn around and see, you know, that they would get involved in, in changing their business model 
if they weren't realizing that you know they're going to gain thirty, you know, they, if they're gaining five or ten percent, then this wouldn't have been a wouldn't have been worthwhile. They wouldn't have put all the additional sensors into their engines, and they wouldn't have turned around and thought, let's change our business model to try and help our airline, help our customers get more out of their out of their planes. There's a challenge now, I guess, in in the sense that you know, moving from the processes that we have had and still do on many projects to the world of uh, the the new kind of another catchphrase and this whole podcast is full of catchphrases today. I liked your new term <laughs> smart building because that'll be the next catchphrase that some software vendor wants to steal and use as a as a catchphrase for their uh, for their software. But uh, big data, you know, let's move on to big data and. Uh, <sighs> <laughs> we love our big data. We but, love our big data. But, yep. But the same thing when you have uh when you when you venture down uh, a green pasture, there's always an area that's uh dead <laughs> or or a part of it that, you know, every every positive track has a negative to it, you know, there's not all positive. New term on the uh, on the agenda: dark data. Do you want to do you want yep. to share with the listeners a little bit about what uh, dark data actually is? Yeah, so that's a term that Gartner came up with. That I just think is particularly applicable. I mean, everybody knows that now we create more data. I think in an hour than the entire previous, you know civilizations did, and so we are actually awash in data. So whether you call big data lots of it or large models and we we have both and Gartner found that actually most of it is inaccessible so we're just gathering data for the sake of it so we can't do anything with it because a we might not know where it is because we've got nowhere to put it or b if we do know where it is we don't know how to interrogate it or bring it in to our other management um, systems so that we can we can feed it in feed it into all our other systems. So I think, honestly, it was something like 5% of all the data we create is actually useful and the rest of it is just, I don't know, zooming around in zeros and ones in ether space, ether somewhere. Yeah, well, what it demonstrates too is that for a asset owner that's looking to specify their information requirements that they have to be careful not to over-specify because otherwise what they will end up with is essentially dark data, which really is waste. So it's electronic waste or digital waste that will never drive any value for their organisation whatsoever. But they've probably paid for it somewhere. Yeah, they would have so, paid for it. They would have paid for it up front. And, correct. And they would have probably paid market value for it. But then the thing is, is to get good quality, even if it's good quality, even if it's good quality, it's... It's structured the way they've asked for it. It's 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 you know named the way they asked for it. It was all done correctly, mm. but unless they actually have a purpose or use for it at the other end, you know you could have a very sophisticated CAFM system or uh, another system in place that might suck up all this data, which is of of you know might not be high value but high cost. It might be high cost low value, and they have this information, but it actually there's zero uh, business sense in the sense it doesn't actually return any value back to the asset owner. It just sits there as, as waste and and clogging up um, important data, I guess. Well, that's right. And I, I think that comes back to, and it seems to be a bit of a theme today, um, you need to think of the end in mind. So yeah. the outcome that you want. 
So if, you, if you're constructing a building, you may or may not want to know what type of concrete pour went into it and the steel rebar and all that, all the maybe the foundational. You might want to know that. Yes. Or you might not. It might have no bearing in how you operate the building. So do you really want to gather all that data and manage it or do you not? So I think it's really understanding what the outcome is that you want. And I think the outcome for buildings is, as I said before, to make them usable, to make them sustainable. So you don't want huge power costs with your building. And that comes down obviously to maybe the design and those are the sort of things is probably buildings are actually simpler um, than some of the other complex assets, although they do have building management systems. And another one, security. You want your building to be secure. So I, I really do think it, the data capture comes back again to the outcome that you have. So if you're running a very complex asset and you can't afford to have any downtime of your asset, like some of the plant, then you probably do want the nth degree of detail because any one of those small components could fail and cause you an outage. In a building, if the lights fail on floor four, it doesn't have a huge impact on everyone else, does it? So, But then again, you do want the sprinkler systems to work on every floor and you want them to be tested and you want the smoke alarms to work. So you want all those those aspects that make that building safe and secure and livable or usable for people. But maybe you don't need, you know, the actual construction data of that building. Or well, maybe you do because you've got all those apartment blocks that started cracking. So maybe you do want that data at some point. But I think the way it needs to be set up is potentially, you know, it's almost like a storage shed in, in many ways. You have the stuff that you have in your house that you need access to 24-7. So that's essentially the data that you need to have access to that needs to be adjusted and maintained and and interacted with on a daily basis. And then the storage shed where people put their their additional stuff that they only need to call upon once every two years, three years. So having different strategies for different components of information so that, okay, to maintain this asset, I don't need to know the concrete strength. I don't need to know where the... Uh, post-tensioned um, strands are in the slab. But if I'm going to perform a re uh, renovation or undertake a, a core cut through this slab to put in a new service, that's when that information is critical. And I think, yeah. you know, from my perspective, there's that's that's the kind of angle that I think clients need to understand. And it's hard for them to understand. You can see a lot of agencies still don't actually understand the information they need right now. And it's I think it's probably because the whole fear of they don't know what they don't know or it's kind of the, it's frightening to think about it all in one big piece. I think the, the fundamental step to all this is start with what you know first. So how do you actually maintain your asset today and then digitizing that process? Then step two is look at opportunities and then actually undertake a business case similar to the Rolls-Royce scenario where you understand it's going to cost X amount of dollars to implement this strategy. Is it going to A, reduce the risk of our asset failing? Is it going to be B, you know, more sustainable, C, more comfortable for the occupants? And and essentially 
ticking off, I guess, values against each of those items to make a difference. And then to me, that's probably the takeaway for people from our chat today. Or am I missing something? Or do you want anything extra to add? Uh, no, I, I, that just leads into, again, about thinking about the outcome that you want to get to. And you're exactly right. You do need to keep that data for, for concerning the, the concrete and the structural information about your asset. But you probably, you just need to know where that is. You probably don't need to, because that stuff doesn't change on a regular basis. No. So you just need to know where that is for for the time when you need to access it again. But all the other information that feeds into the building management system or is, is part of your day-to-day maybe software model, digital twin smart building, yeah. you do need to know. Uh, but at the end of the day, especially in the built environment, we're supplying functional buildings that perform a purpose and the purpose is to assist us as human beings doing whatever we're doing. So at the end of the day, that's what I think we need to keep in mind when we when we deliver these these buildings, these the built environment. And that's a really good point to end on. But Anna, thank you very much for your time talking to us today. Greatly appreciate it. Now I have one final question for you and this is the question I ask all of my guests. What does BIM mean to you? So BIM means building information management, or it's even wider than that. I like to call it digital engineering now, and it's about capturing the information about the process, the people, and having, as you said, the data classified so that you can reuse it in another environment. So BIM as a standalone 3D model, it's great, and they look great, a lot of them, but it needs to be useful further down in the, in the management of that asset. Thanks once again for your time, Anna. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks for the opportunity to have a chat. I really enjoyed it. So for more information on Anna and Digital Twins, please head to our website for further reading. I look forward to sharing our podcast in a fortnight's time. Until then, good luck with your digital transition. For more information, or if you'd like to continue the discussion in the comments section, head over to our website, thedigitaltransition.com. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on our future podcasts. The Digital Transition